Good morning. Welcome to Calvary. Can I have you turn up in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5? For those of you who are new with us, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday morning, and we find ourselves in a section that runs from chapter 5 through chapter 7, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, or the sermon that Jesus delivered from a mount overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And it was directed at the disciples. That is very clear from verses 1 and 2. This was not intended for the multitudes. The things that Jesus teaches in this sermon, unbelievers are incapable of doing. This is is kingdom living, which is only possible for those who have the Holy Spirit inside of them. So keep that in mind. But as we looked at last time, we started to enter into the largest section in the Sermon on the Mount. runs from verse 17 of chapter 5 to the end of the chapter. And in this section, Jesus Christ is going to be dealing with the subject of righteousness. What does that really mean? Well, just to give you a simple definition, we'll look at it more in detail next time, but if you you could paraphrase it and say it like this. Jesus Christ in this section is teaching people what it takes to get to heaven. What it takes to get to heaven, all right? Does it take man's righteousness, that he works hard to earn that righteousness through his religious deeds and so on, or... Does it come from a righteousness that comes from God himself? And so we'll look at that as we go through this. But uh, let's read verses 17 and 18 once again, because we started this last time we met. But in verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law Till all is fulfilled. Now, back in Jesus' day, when the Jews heard the term the law, they thought of three different things. Okay? Sometimes the term the law, in its very narrowest sense, was used to describe the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it was used in a slightly broader sense. When they heard the words the law, sometimes the context was the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, those written by Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But also, whenever they heard the words law, depending again on the context, the broadest application was their Jewish scriptures, what they called the Tanakh, what we call our Old Testament. Now, you have to look at the context to determine, well, what exactly is in view? But let me say this, whenever anyone coupled like the Lord Jesus the words, the law, and the prophets together in one phrase, that always meant the totality of the Jewish scriptures. Always. So when Jesus said in verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, he was speaking of all the Jewish scriptures. Now, when Jesus said in verse 18, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law, Till all is fulfilled. I'm sure you're wondering as you read that, okay, what is this jot and tittle stuff? Well, these were some of the smallest markings of the Hebrew alphabet. A jot was comparable to the dot above our lowercase i in English. The tittle, well, that was a small angled line that differentiated an uppercase r in our English vocabulary or alphabet from a p. Just a little line that differentiates the the uppercase R from a P. If Jesus were talking to us in our culture, you know, using English as a reference, he would have said something like, 
Assuredly, I say to you, not one dot of the eye or cross of the T shall pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, folks, I don't know if you really have given that statement much thought, verse 18 particularly, because, you know, sometimes we just gloss over these things, we read them and just breeze right through them. I want you to understand something, though. The statement by Jesus in verse 18 is one of the most important statements he ever spoke in the New Testament. You say, really? Yes, really. Because whether you know it or not, it forms the basis for one of the most important doctrines in our Christian faith, that the Bible is the Word of God. That's what he's saying here. And because it has come to us from God himself, it is inspired down to the smallest detail. Therefore, it is absolute truth, which is inerrant, authoritative, and the very bedrock and foundation for our faith. Aren't you glad that you don't go into a Christian bookstore and you see a Bible on the shelf that says, new, updated, and revised version? <laughs> you never see that with the Bible, do you? Books that man writes, they're always being updated and revised. But when God spoke this book, 66 books through 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years, when he gave it to man, it was his word. It was an errant, authoritative. It never needs to be updated, revised, uh, modified in any way because it is God's word. And as Jesus said, not one jot or tittle, not the smallest markings of the letters of this book will ever pass away until everything God has promised comes to pass. Now, this is very important for us as Christians to understand because we are living in a day when the Bible has come under incredible attacks from all different directions by various groups, each trying to undermine its claim that it comes to us from God and is therefore inspired and authoritative. Of course, the Bible has always been under attack from the very beginning. Satan attacked it in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? He tried to get Eve to doubt what God had really said, all right? Did God really say? God's word has been attacked from the very beginning, and today is no, it's no different. We've always had the atheists and the humanists who have worked overtime to overthrow the Bible and get rid of it from our national discourse, our national life. They want a purely secular society, free of any kind of religion. But also for many years, the Bible has been under a direct frontal assault from liberal theologians and pastors who claim the Bible is not really inspired by God. It's simply a collection of myths and legends and personal experiences of people that are recording their own experiences that they have had with God. They say, you know, we can learn some important principles from the Bible as long as you don't get carried away. I mean, certainly don't look at it as inspired from God. It's ridiculous, they say. And so that is the flagrant frontal assault that has been going on against the Word of God for many centuries. Paul the Apostle said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration in the Greek means God-breathed. All Scripture has been God-breathed. It's living and powerful. Remember when God made Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a what? A living soul, right? When it speaks of God breathing out something, it speaks of life. When God breathed out his word, it was inspired in the sense it came from God. It, it has got life in it. It's living and powerful, the writer to the Hebrews tells us. Paul said it's inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God, of course, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What Paul is saying is the Bible is the ultimate source of truth concerning the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of redemption. 
as well as eternal life and so on. There's no other place you can go in the world to find out what is really true with regard to those subjects. Very important. No wonder the devil hates it so much. No wonder he has tried from the very beginning to uh, try to undermine it, try to, um, to attack it, to, to get people to believe it's not really what God says it is. So we see the direct frontal assault. We see also a backdoor attack against the authority of Scripture in our culture today. What is that? Well, it basically comes from those who say that it's experience that really validates the Word of God. Experience is the ultimate authority to determine whether something is really from God or not. This is a very dangerous mindset today. Uh, years ago, I don't know if they're, they're still laughing. They might be snickering still at this point. But the holy laughter thing was going on, you know, years ago, right? There's probably a few still hanging on to that, you know, and still chuckling or whatever it might be. Uh, that was a big deal. And when you pointed out that, well, show me in the Bible where that experience is. Show me anywhere in the Bible where people fell down laughing hysterically when the Spirit came upon them. Well, not in the Bible, but God's bigger than His Word. You're limiting God, they tell us. You, if it's not in the Bible, then you don't believe it's from God. But see, God is bigger than His Word. Doesn't that sound kind of spiritual? That we're limiting God, right? And, and they're really open to letting God be God and do all He wants to do, right? And they say, you know, just because an experience is not in the Bible doesn't mean that God can't give it. Well, I guess that's true, except God said Himself He wouldn't give us anything that He has not first revealed in the pages of Scripture. Why did He say that? Because He said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Test all things and hold fast to that which is what? Good. I can't test whether an experience is from God if it's outside of the realm of the tester, which is the Bible. If God was going to do things outside of his word, then we couldn't test it because we can't see the spirit realm. We don't have the equipment to see into the spirit realm to see if the demons are behind this or if God and his good angels are behind this. We have to rely on God's word to tell us what he's going to do and by inference what he's not going to do. Another one is this whole movement today. This is a big one called contemplative prayer. What is that? Well, we've talked about that. In fact, if you weren't in church the last couple of Wednesdays, get the CDs because we talked about this in detail. But contemplative prayer is basically transcendental meditation that's been Christianized and brought into the church. It's Eastern mysticism, which has been Christianized, quote-unquote, and brought into the church and is being presented now as a wonderful new prayer technique. What is it? Well, to be involved in this contemplative prayer, what you have to do is you have to empty your mind of all thought. You can't do that unless you practice uh, breathing exercises. That's why sometimes it's called breath prayers. Or you repeat a word or a mantra over and over again until you enter into an altered state of consciousness they call the silence. Now, folks, this has been practiced in Hinduism, in Buddhism for centuries. This is transcendental meditation. They say, well, look, when I say, well, show me in the Bible where uh, this is taught, well, they'll go to verses that talk about meditation in the Bible and see, God, all over the Bible, we, we read about you know, how we should meditate on the Word and so on. Biblical meditation is not the same as Eastern meditation. The word for meditate in the Hebrew is simply a word that means to chew the cud. And the idea is that you keep chewing on God's Word, keep thinking upon it, keep mulling it over in your mind until you extract everything God wants you to, to learn from that passage. Nowhere in the scriptures are we ever taught 
to repeat a mantra over and over again until we enter into this altered state of consciousness called the silence, where they say, now you're in contact with the spirit realm, and now you can really come in contact with God. But they also say, but you know what? Now that you're in contact with the spirit realm, not all the spirits are good guys. There's evil spirits. And you don't want them hassling you, so you better learn how to practice prayers of protection. Where in the Bible are these things taught? Folks, this is part of the great apostasy that we were warned about that was going to come into the church in the last days. It's hard to find churches anymore or, or Christian publishing houses or Bible colleges or seminaries that are not teaching some form of contemplative prayer. And yes, people are having experiences. And yes, they initially seem very positive and they must be from God. Why? I feel peace when I do it. I, I get into this silence and I feel God's presence. It's all warm and I feel so good and I just come out of it feeling so refreshed. And folks, the devil will always hook you with the beautiful side of evil. The beautiful side of evil is what he uses to hook people into drugs and other things. Initially, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel, you know, I had a, a guy tell me who became a Christian because he was uh, involved in martial arts and he was getting involved in the meditation more and more. And at first he said, man, I felt such peace. I felt like I could conquer the world, man. I, was, I had so much confidence and, and I felt stronger and stronger every time I practiced these meditation techniques until finally, he said, I began to get more and more stressed, more and more anxious. And one night I woke up in my bed and he said, he said and all of a sudden I felt the presence of pure evil enter into my room. And I really believed in my heart that I was about to be possessed. And if it wasn't for the fact that I had heard people witnessing to me and I had Christian friends, he said, I ran out of there and I called on God and God saved me. But see, it always starts out with the beautiful, with the peaceful, where you feel so great. And then pretty soon comes the, the anxiety and the fear. And then, of course, the counteract that usually you take the drugs or the alcohol. I mean, this is how the devil works. People are having these experiences in the church because they're dabbling with things that, you know, and you try to tell them it's not from God, well, but it feels good and it's been positive, it must be from God. The devil wouldn't give me positive experiences, would he? If he can hook you and trap you, yeah. So we are living in the last days. And as such, the great apostasy has come into the church. And I just want to warn you to be careful, to be on guard. Because these things are gaining momentum. And many Christians are being deceived because they're not being taught from their pastors or leaders that these things are not from God. They are dangerous. They are demonic counterfeits. John the Apostle said, test all things, right? Okay, because not every spirit comes from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Paul said, the Spirit of God expressly says in the last days, some would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Folks, this is what we're talking about. And then, of course, you have the sideways attack. You have the frontal assault, the backdoor attack. Then you have the sideways attacks from those who say the Bible is not sufficient to deal with the complex psychological problems of modern-day man and therefore needs to be supplemented. It's, it's good, it's just not sufficient. I actually had a college professor say one time in class that unless we counsel people combining the secular and the sacred, we're not going to help them. The secular and the sacred. When does God ever partner with the world to help his people? I mean, didn't Peter say God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus? 
in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, you are complete in him. I need to go outside of Jesus to find help from the world. Guys like Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, uh, Abraham Maslow, I'm going to go to these guys who are going to help me. You know, blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the what? Ungodly. That's ungodly counsel. We don't blend the secular and the sacred. God's word is pure. Psalm 19 says, the word of the Lord is pure, right? You try to add the polluted water of this world to what is pure, you just defile what is pure. You don't make it purer. Paul the Apostle in Colossians 2 verse 8 warned us about this mentality. He said, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Good words for this day. So guys, today the Bible is being attacked head-on, back door, sideways, all of which are attempts by Satan to weaken and undermine the authority of the Word of God in your life. But look, Jesus always taught that God's Word was inspired down to the smallest detail and that heaven and earth wouldn't pass away until everything God prophesied and promised in His Word was fulfilled. And you know what, guys? For me, this is the crux of the issue. It really is. You know what? We make things so hard, you know. Today we live in a culture where we've got to always turn to an expert, don't we? Only the experts have the answers, right? And a lot of those people have no answers for anybody. But you know what? We complicate what shouldn't be so complicated. Look, you don't have to be a biblical scholar, be an expert in ancient manuscripts to know whether or not the Bible is truly God's Word. All you've got to know is what Jesus thought about the Scriptures. That's all you've got to know. And Jesus Christ always took the position that the word of God, which he refers to in verse 17 as the law and the prophets, was inspired by God down to the smallest markings of the Hebrew alphabet and was therefore inerrant and authoritative. And guys, I don't know how anybody who truly believes in Jesus could believe anything differently about the Bible. I mean, whatever Jesus believed about the Bible, that's what I want to believe. Because he's God. He's the authority, right? And he gives his view right here which should really settle the debate once and for all for everyone who has put their faith in him. You know, 64 times in the Gospels, Jesus referred to the Scriptures as truth from God. Classic passage, John 17, verse 17. Night before he went to the cross, he prayed to his Father and said, Father, sanctify my disciples by your truth. Your word is truth. You know, it's bad enough when people outside the church attack the authority of God's word, right? But it's really egregious when people from within the walls of the church attack God's word. You know, you have people who call themselves Christians. I don't know if they are or not. Some of them probably are. Many of them, I think, are not. There are a lot of so-called Christians who will come to people like us and they will ridicule our faith by saying, you know, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, you know, but come on, you really believe in stories like Noah and the ark? Do you really believe that God herded all the animals in the, uh, in the world into a boat and then brought a flood that covered the entire world and killed everything, you know, and, and, and God repopulated the earth with just eight people? You really believe that? Uh, yeah. Well, where, how did he get the dinosaurs on the ark? You don't have to take full-grown dinosaurs on the ark. You can take dinosaur eggs, right? You didn't need to take the fish. They could swim. <laughs> and as far as Noah going out with a butterfly net trying to catch all these things, God brought him into the ark, didn't he? 
And by the way, look at the size of the ark. Read the dimensions. That was a gigantic ocean liner. That wasn't a little boat you see in your Sunday school curriculum. People say, well, what about this story of Jonah and the whale? I mean, come on. Do you really think that, that God had a whale swallow Jonah, you know, and take him three days and regurgitate him on the shores that led to Nineveh? Do you really believe that? How could he survive in that whale's belly for three days? Well, who said he did survive? I mean, when Jonah wrote this account in his book, he talked about going down to Sheol. It could be that Jonah actually died in that whale's belly and the Lord revived him, right? He resurrected him. Didn't Jesus use Jonah as an illustration of the resurrection? Just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I mean, it's nothing for our God to, to resurrect somebody who's been in a whale's belly for three days and three nights. And by the way, I want to tell you something. By the time that that, that whale regurgitated Jonah up on the shores that led to Nineveh, they say that after spending three days in a whale's belly with all the gastric juices working on you, it would have dissolved all your body hair, bleached your skin white like snow. He probably got up with seaweed wrapped around his head, walked into Nineveh. What did he say? Repent. Hey! You know what? Maybe that was a little insight into why everybody repented. I don't know. I mean, if I saw a guy like that come to me and said, repent, I'd repent. <laughs> but you really believe that, you Christians? Of course I do. Well, why? First of all, because it's in God's Word. And I believe everything in God's Word is inspired. But secondly, and more to the point, Jesus believed in Noah and Jonah. He called them by name. Jesus spoke of them as real individuals and mentioned their accounts in the scriptures as historical record, true and so on. And I know it's hard for people to get their mind around because our society is, is just pounded on the word for many years, trying to undermine its authority. And I know there are people that, Christians, who say, well, I believe the Bible is God's word, but, but down to the smallest detail, I don't think I can really go that far. Well, again, what did Jesus believe? Turn to Matthew 22. Let me show you. Can we really take it down to the, consider the word of God inspired down to the smallest detail? Well, in verse 17, or excuse me, verse 18, Jesus said we could. Every jot and tittle was inspired by God. But let me take you to Matthew 22. And let's look at verses 23 to 32. It says, the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, and by the way, that's why they were sad, you see. Uh, they came to him. Now listen, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. The Sadducees believed this was it, folks. This is, you only go around once. This is it. Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, this is the only, this is, this is it. They did not believe in life after death, resurrection, and so on. So that's where they were coming from. So they came to Jesus, and they were trying to trap him. Okay, in verse 24, they said, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also died, and then the third, and even to the seventh. I've got to tell you something. If I'm like the sixth brother, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not eating this gal's cooking, all right? Because, man, they're dropping like flies, all right? I mean... I'm not going there. But anyway, this is just a hypothetical story. All right? 
So, so all seven married this gal, each one died, and then they said, and then finally the woman died also. Therefore, verse 28, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now they thought this was an airtight you know, problem. Okay, they raised like an airtight, like the, yeah, somebody says, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Uh, no, well, he can't do all things, they think he got you. Well, you got to come back and say, well, no, God can't do anything, uh, everything. What? That's, that's right, God can't do everything. In fact, I can do things that God can't do. What? That's right, I can lie, I can steal, I can lust. God can't do any of those things. God will only do what his nature will allow him to do. He will never do evil, Right? Anyways, that's another sermon. Well, that doesn't count against my time either. I just threw that in. Um, so, you know, they thought they had him. This is what Jesus said, verse 29. You are what? Mistaken, that's all. You know, your critics, they're just mistaken. They think they got you. They're just mistaken. They don't know the scriptures. Not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. All right? But concerning the resurrection, now Jesus turns the table on them. Okay? You know, you guys don't believe in the resurrection. Well, let's talk about the resurrection for just a moment here. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying? Now, he quotes out of the first five books of Moses. Now, why did he quote the Pentateuch? Because the Sadducees only believed that the writings of Moses were inspired. They didn't believe any other books of the Old Testament were inspired by God. So what does Jesus do? He takes them back to the five books of Moses. And he says to them, look, have you not read what God said? Verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What is the Lord saying here? Well, when God said that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had already long since died. But God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God, which meant that they were still alive. Their spirits were still alive. They had, not really, they had died physically, but not spiritually. You see, Jesus hung an entire doctrine on whether a verb was past tense or present tense. You think he believed the Bible was inspired down to the smallest detail? Later on in Galatians, Paul would base an entire doctrine on whether a noun was plural or singular. These men had a very high view of Scripture, something many in our churches and seminaries do not have today. And you know what? I don't care how many letters they have after their name. I'm going to take a very simple, childlike approach to this whole issue. What did Jesus believe? What did Jesus say? Because you know what? I'm going to believe Jesus over any human being. Jesus Christ believed that the scriptures would keep people from error. He said it right here. You err not knowing the scriptures. He believed the scriptures were a powerful weapon to be used against the temptations of the devil, which he himself demonstrated in the wilderness when three times the devil tempted him, and three times the Lord Jesus responded by saying, it is written, and then quoted the scriptures. Folks, if you're going to believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and if you're going to receive him, as your Lord and Savior, then listen to me. You absolutely better accept what he said about the Bible, that it is the inspired word of God, and as such we are bound to live by what it says if we want to be a part of his kingdom. 
So that's very simple to me. I mean, you know, anybody who says, well, I want to be a Christian, I just don't want to believe all that God has said in, in the Bible. I want to kind of, you know, it was Thomas Jefferson, all right, who kind of uh, edited his own Bible, the Jefferson Bible. I got a reproduction of it. He didn't like the supernatural. He didn't like, he didn't believe in miracles and things like that. So he went through and he cut out all the supernatural stuff and left all the moral teachings. Now, there's a man, smart guy, right? But he sat in judgment of God's word. Folks, God's word sits in judgment of us. And if you try to sit in judgment of God's word, it will judge you someday. The word of God has to break us. And if we don't let it break us now, it will judge us forever. But verse 19, and I'll, I'll finish with verse 19 this morning. Verse 19 brings up, and we're just taking these four verses a little extra time because they form the foundation of all that comes after in, ver in chapter 5. So if we get the foundation laid right, then the rest of the passage will just flow. But verse 19 brings up an interesting debate. How much of the Old Testament applies to us who are New Testament Christians? Let's read verse 19 again. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. How much of the Old Testament law is still binding on our lives as New Testament Christians? Remember last time we said the law contains 613 commandments. And they were divided into three main categories. You had the civil, or sometimes it's called the judicial law. You had the ceremonial law, and then you had the moral law. The judicial law was intended for Israel to govern their national life and was set aside when God set the nation aside when she rejected her Messiah. The ceremonial law was given to Israel to govern their worship of God and was contained in ordinances, ceremonies, feast days, and sacrifices, all of which pointed to and foreshadowed, I should say, Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. And so when Jesus died on the cross, we read how the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. That signified the ceremonial laws had been fulfilled in Christ and had now passed away. And by the way, they tell me that that veil, you know, we think of a veil, we think of something very flimsy. This was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. They tell me it was made, gigantic thing that was made of one layer of fabric on top of each other, sewn together until it was about 12 to 18 inches thick. It was a wall of separation. They say that a, a mule train, 20 strong, couldn't pull the thing apart. But when Jesus died on the cross, at that instant, the veil, this curtain was torn from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, top to bottom, signifying who tore that curtain? God did. God did. It was God's way of saying, you don't need the ceremonial laws anymore because it's open house. My son has paid for all those sins. See, we no longer need animal sacrifices, the blood of which only could temporarily cover our sins. We have the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, whose perfect sacrifice, his blood, not only paid for our sins, but removed their stain from our lives forever for those who receive him as Lord and Savior. We no longer need a priesthood in the new covenant. The priests were mediators that, that stood between God and the people because the people were not worthy to come to God directly. They needed a go-between. Jesus Christ is our mediator. He has bridged the gap between God and man. And again, when he tore that when God tore that curtain open, it signified that all of us who are believers in Christ are now worthy to come into God's presence boldly. Not timidly, 
boldly, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us. So the judicial law and the ceremonial laws have passed away. But what about the moral law? You know, there are many Christians who believe that we are still bound to keep the moral law, the Ten Commandments, which includes the Sabbath. I'm hearing more and more of this lately. More and more Christians are buying into the mindset that we are still bound by the Ten Commandments. They are still a law that we need to keep. I heard one guy say um, they were written in stone. That's why they're forever. Well, stone also signifies something that's hard, right? As in a heart, maybe? And God said in the New Covenant, I'm not going to write my laws on external tablets of stone because my people didn't keep those laws. I'm going to write them on the fleshly tablets of their hearts. When they receive my son, the Spirit is going to come in, give them a new heart that wants to do my will, see? But we looked at this last week, uh, last time we met. If you weren't here, we talked about the Sabbath uh, in a little detail. So a lot of Christians believe, well, we're still under the moral law, Ten Commandments, which means Christians are still bound to observe the Sabbath. What about all this? Well, let me read you something from one of my favorite commentators, William MacDonald. Okay, he's written a one-volume commentary, and I usually don't like one-volume commentaries. They're just too basic. They just brush over too many things, you know. This is the best one-volume commentary you will ever find. You can get it at any Christian bookstore. William MacDonald's Believer's Commentary. Awesome reference. And I saw this in his commentary. I thought, you know what, I'm going to read this to you. I thought this was really the way he summed it all up in a very succinct way. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, A common question in a discussion of the believer's relation to the law is, should I obey the Ten Commandments? The answer is that certain principles contained in the law are of lasting relevance. It's always wrong to steal, to covet, to murder, and so on. That's true, right? He said nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament with an important distinction. Don't miss this. They are not given as law with penalty attached, but as training in righteousness for the people of God. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says. So look, why are we not under the law anymore? Because law carries punishment with it, doesn't it? Law carries penalty. The penalty is punishment. As believers, when we violate what God has said, we lie or we, we lust or whatever, we are not punished with hell. We are what? We're chastened, aren't we? Chastening is discipline. God disciplines his kids. He doesn't throw us out of the family and send us to hell when we blow it. Unbelievers are under the law. If they never repent, they will be punished in hell forever. Those of us who are God's children, guess what? Now what he has said becomes like, we'll say, the family rules. In a family, when you guys, you know, when your kids were little, you laid down rules, right? When the kids violated those rules, did you throw them out of the house? Did you disown them? No, you discipline them lovingly. Why? To bring them into a place of obedience so that you can bless them. God wants to bless his kids. He can't re bless rebellious children. So he disciplines us, but it's not punitive. It's corrective. That's why we're not under the law. I'm not saying we should be lawless in the sense that we just do whatever we want. I'm just saying, though, that when we, we want to obey God, not because the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. But let me continue, okay? He says, the one commandment not repeated is the Sabbath law. Christians are never taught to keep the Sabbath. In other words, to observe Saturday, the seventh day of the week, as a day of worship and so on. Again, get the CD from last time. I went into this. 
McDonald says the ministry of the law to unsaved people has not ended, though. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8. It's lawful to use the law to produce the knowledge of sin, which then leads to repentance. But the law is not for those who are already saved, because as Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 9, the law is not made for a righteous person. In other words, and this is what we're going to be getting into in detail here in chapter 5. Why was the law given? Let's just think of the Ten Commandments for a minute, okay? Why did God give the Ten Commandments? Did He give the Ten Commandments to His people so that they could keep these things and go to heaven? Earn their way into heaven? Try it. Try it, right? And when you think you're keeping the commandments, then, as we're going to learn, but they also affect the inward attitudes of the heart. So even if you don't murder but you hate, you're guilty. Even if you don't commit adultery but you lust, you're guilty. We're going to see that God never intended these things to make us righteous. He only intended them to show us how sinful we were. That was the purpose of the law. If we use the, that's why we use the law lawfully when we go out to witness. When we ask people, can we talk to you about the Lord? Sure. Uh, when you die, you think you're going to go to heaven? Yeah, I do. Why? Well, I'm a good person. Well, can I ask you a few questions? Sure. You ever lied? Yeah. What's that make you? A liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Maybe even a piece of gum when you were a kid. Yeah, well, yeah. What does that make you? A thief? When you stand before God on the day of judgment, do you think he's going to say you're a good person or a guilty person? I guess guilty. Do you think he'd be sending you to heaven or he'd have to send you to hell? I guess he'd have to send me to hell. Well, I got some good news for you then. Jesus died so you wouldn't have to go to hell. Jesus lived the perfect life. He kept all those laws. And if you want to get to heaven, don't try to do it through your own strength and good works, you fall on your face and receive him as your Lord and Savior. And by faith, he'll take his righteousness and put it to your account and will have taken your sins and nailed it to his cross. So the law is good if you use it right. If you try to use it to be righteous, you're using it wrong. It's not going to get you there. Therefore, McDonald says, the person who trusts in Jesus is no longer under the law. He is under grace. He is dead to the law through the work of Christ. The penalty of the law must be paid once only. Jesus Christ paid that penalty. The believer does not have to. It is in this sense that the law has faded away for the Christian. The law was a tutor until Christ came. It, it taught us we couldn't keep the law for righteousness. We had to come to Christ by faith. But after salvation, a tutor is no longer needed. Yet while the Christian is not under the law, that doesn't mean he is lawless. He is bound by a stronger chain than the law because he is under the law of Christ. In other words, he wants to obey his Savior. His behavior is molded not by fear of punishment, but by a loving desire to please his Savior. Christ has become his rule of life, end quote. I hope that helps clarify some things. There's so much confusion on this subject. Now, look, let me read verse 19 again. It will bring us to a close. Jesus said, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And people jump on this and go, well, look, right here, Jesus said we are, we are to teach the commandments, which are the Ten Commandments. See, right here, we're to teach them still. Well, you have to interpret verse 19 in the light of verse 18. Where Jesus said, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till what? All is fulfilled. Now look, 
Certainly, when we talk about the entire Word of God, there are many prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. Jesus Christ has not come back to the earth yet. He has not established His kingdom yet. There are many things that are yet future. And yet, when it comes to salvation, everything that we need for salvation has already been fulfilled. What did Jesus say before He dismissed the Spirit on the cross? He said what? It is finished, right? It is fulfilled. We are righteous because of what Christ did. Now, as Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments, not as a way of earning your salvation, but as a way of demonstrating that you are already saved. You're a child of God, and you want to live like a king's kid now in a corrupt world. As one author said, Jesus did not destroy the law by fighting it. He destroyed it by fulfilling it. And for all those who accept Jesus' work on the cross... As payment for their sins, his blood has now washed away their sin, and the law has been fulfilled in your life. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you are now in Christ. Christ was the only one who ever really kept and fulfilled the law. And because we are in him, as God sees us in Christ, we have fulfilled the law as well. We don't have to keep laws for righteousness. We're righteous in Christ. Now we obey what God has said because they're the rules of the family. And we want to obey our Heavenly Father. We want to please Him. We don't want to go out and steal and lie and do this and that. Kind of. Why? Because I fear hell? No. All things are lawful for me, Paul said. I'm saved by grace. But I don't do all things because they don't please my Father and will hinder my progress in my sanctification. Which is, I want to be more like Jesus, not less like Jesus. Grace, I don't know about you guys. Some people think that grace is a license to sin. You know what grace is to me? Grace makes me want to sin less, not sin more. Now, let me end with this. There are those people who still can't get past. And these are very religious people that are among us. Maybe some of you guys, you know, relatives. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I still know Roman Catholics who go to church every single day of the week. And they do all the stuff that the Catholic Church tells them to do. They light the candles and they pray the rosary and they do this and that. In their minds, those works earn them heaven. And you will talk to them and they get very indignant because you claim that those things are really not going to get them into heaven. You know, religious people work very hard at earning their salvation. Saul of Tarsus, who before he became Paul the Apostle, worked very hard at earning his salvation. That wasn't until he realized it was a gift that was received, not a work that was earned. And then what did he say in Philippians 3? I counted it all what? Garbage. To have the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ to count as gain. But they will say to you, look, man, I go to church every day. You don't even go to church every day. I'm lighting candles. I'm saying the rosary, man. I, I meticulously keep all the rules of, and ceremonies and regulations of my church. How can you claim that I'm not going to heaven because of what I do? Well, I'm not claiming that. Jesus is. You see, he said in verse 20, and this will be just to set us up for next time. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you just to think upon that for a while, okay? Because next time we'll explore that. But as I've said to you before, let me say it again. The concept in Israel in Jesus' day was that the scribes and Pharisees were so righteous. Why? Because they kept all the law down. They didn't really keep it. They thought they were keeping it, you know. 
But they were very meticulous. You know, they even tithed from their herb gardens. Okay? Jesus talked about that. But everyone thought they were, in Israel, thought they were so holy. The scribes and Pharisees, there was a saying that the people had. If only two people made it into heaven, one would be a scribe, the other would be a Pharisee. Because these guys are the most holy. They're the, if anybody is going to get into heaven by keeping the law, it's these guys. And what did Jesus say? Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not going to even see heaven. Now, folks, we have heard that statement ever since we got saved. Put yourself in their sandals for a moment. You have been taught all your life keeping the law makes you righteous in God's eyes and earns you heaven. The scribes and Pharisees, man, they're the ones who keep the law better than anybody. They're a shoe-in. And you hear Jesus say, they're not going to even make it unless, you're not going to make it unless your righteousness goes beyond theirs. Their mouths must have dropped open and hit the ground. Because I'm sure they were thinking that nobody's going to get into heaven. And you know what, folks? Keep that in mind. That's exactly what Jesus wanted them to think. No man is worthy to earn heaven. The Son of Man came down from heaven to provide us a way, the only way we could be saved. And it wasn't through our good works, it was through his completed work on Calvary's cross. We have to understand this. May God give us grace as we study this, pick it up next time, and get into the bulk of chapter 5. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that your word is inspired. That, Father, you spoke it through men, but as you did by the power of your Spirit, you kept it inerrant, pure, authoritative. It is the foundation for all that we believe. And we just pray, Lord, that you will continue to teach us as we go through this section. Many of us, Lord, this is very familiar territory, but, Lord, help us to approach it like we would as if we were living back in the first century, as one of your disciples hearing this for the first time, to understand how revolutionary this teaching really was. We thank you, Lord, that you did all the work. You paid the price. That you saved us, Lord. We couldn't save ourselves. We just thank you now, Lord. And we ask you to continue to bless this study. In Jesus' name, amen.